Vaxi's musical podcast. In 1981, exactly 40 years ago, the band DOA out of Vancouver, British Columbia, released one of the most influential albums of the decade called Hardcore 81. This album and the band are important for a number of different reasons. First of all, DOA were the first band to impose the term hardcore to the new subgenre of punk music. In hardcore, bands like DOA, Black Flag, Minor Threat, Bad Brains, and the Dead Kennedys were kicking it up a few notches with speed, volume, aggression, and more provocative lyrics. But DOA wasn't just a label maker. DOA was something entirely different. Yes, they included all the elements that define hardcore, but they also perfected the do-it-yourself approach that existed in punk since the 70s, but never to this degree. The original 1978 DOA lineup included drumming legend Chuck Biscuits, bass player Randy Rampage, and today's guest Joe Keithley, who was known by his stage name as Joey Shithead. But what you're about to find out in just a few minutes is this man was no shithead at all. Joey was not only the founder of the band's independent label, Sudden Death Records, he would front the band for the next 43 years, releasing dozens of their own records, EPs, and singles. They also created a sophisticated network amongst other bands that provided the names of clubs and towns that were safe to play in and ones that were not. They also provided the names of clubs where you could expect to get paid and which ones you would not. They also connected bands with the names of hardcore fans that were willing to offer a couch to sleep on. Remember, this was before email, before the internet. They didn't even have fax machines back then. Yet it was an essential piece in spreading hardcore throughout the rest of North America and beyond. What DOA had and continues to have was an endless, relentless work ethic, guided by a mission statement that simply said, talk minus action equals zero. But it doesn't stop there. Because DOA has actively supported a series of political causes over the years, including anti-racism, anti-censorship, and a number of environmental issues, and many, many more. In other words, DOA, and especially Joey Shithead, have always put their money where their mouth is in a manner of speaking. In 2018, Joey Keithley, who is now 65 years old, was elected to the city council in his hometown of Burnaby, British Columbia, a city of nearly a quarter of a million people. It's a position where he not only expects to run for re-election— He's also putting his words into action, just like the DOA motto. And like I said, this is the 40th anniversary of the DOA album Hardcore 81. And the album has been given a limited edition vinyl release that includes three bonus tracks, a 12-page booklet, and it comes in red vinyl. The band is going on the road on a West Coast tour playing the entire album from front to back. This is my conversation with the leader of DOA and Burnaby City Councilor Joe Keithley. Joey Shithead on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Yeah, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Sorry about the next up earlier. I had one. Well, I I figured, you know, you got got a band to run. You got a record to to re-release. You got a tour on the the horizon. Plus, you're running the city all the same time. I figured. I'm a little busy. Yeah, just, just a little bit. I do want to say though, it's a real pleasure to talk to you because I've been I've been a fan for a long time. Even have my uh, my beat the shit copy of uh, <laughs> of Hardcore eighty one. Okay. Forty years ago, this thing comes out, and you know it's yep. always been one of my favorite hardcore records. Tell me about the updated uh, the the new release, the new, the new version. It sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. So that just came out on my label, so people can find that suddendeath.com or or record stores, whatever. So 
added three bonus tracks. So we took the early singles, um, Disco Sucks, which from 78, the Prisoner version, the single, as opposed to one song, the um, Something Bird Change album. And then we, so I thought the bookend really was uh, adding Fucked Up Ronnie because like Fucked Up Baby's on Parkway One, but everybody knows Fucked Up Ronnie. And then later on, you know, we did a single Fucked Up Donald. Uh, we sang it Fucked Up Thatcher. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that song's been like that pretty, uh, pretty universal. Like, I think I wrote that one. I was about 18 and it says served me well since then, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like Willie Nelson wrote a song that he's still playing 60 years later type thing. So we put Fucked Up Ronnie at the very end. So it's the same mix pretty well, uh, but just different lyrics. So it's a pretty fine and uh, that kid. So he did that. And then the coolest thing though is uh, there's a, a 12 page booklet that comes with the LP version. And so I wrote like, um, I don't know, 2,500 words on DOA's take of um, the origins of hardcore. And then we found a bunch of pictures uh, that people had never seen before. And my drummer, Patty's, uh, Patty Duddy is a graphic designer. So he put together the booklet. So yeah. So and. Anyways, I think it's a nice thing for the fans that they can take a look and uh, get our take on it. Well, it, it, to me, it's always been you know an important record for a lot of different reasons. I mean, not just the the story of it, you know, labeling the the genre of hardcore, but it, it's also the the record or one of those records that you know inspired a lot of people to start their own bands and right. kind of take control of their own destiny, doing it the way you guys did, which I always thought was the most Im important and intriguing part of the DOA story. Yeah is the DIY aspect. Yeah, I think you've got a really good point there because um, um, I, when people think, well, what was punk rock's biggest contribution? Uh, was it musical style? Was it, as some people really in the early days said, focus on fashion? I'm talking way back in the Sex Pistols uh, early, early era when I was still a teenager and heard those guys. Um, but I think the biggest thing was uh, um, people thinking that they could do it yourself. And enabling people, people to start labels, to start magazines, they started their own businesses and, uh, you know, tried to at least minimize uh, the amount of big corporations they're dealing with. I mean, you're still shipping stuff through UPS or, or through the post office or whatever, right? right. I mean, but I think uh, punk rocks, uh, yeah, we can do this ourselves attitude. I think that's the biggest contribution that it made to society. I read uh, Keith Morris wrote a book a few years ago. From yeah. uh, from the Circle Jerks, and 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 one of the things he that he talked about in the book was DOA was kind of like a like a like its own network where you know they would kind of <laughs> go through you guys to figure out all right well which club is okay to play in which ones am I going to get paid you know what communities will have us you know what fans can I sleep on their couch I mean it all seems to kind of run through DOA at a time you know before the internet or email. And to me, that's the really fascinating thing is how you kind of connected the map of North America to hardcore. Yeah, it was an interesting process. Like when I first started, um, uh, we started uh, even in the Skulls, not to be confused with the Skulls from Los Angeles, but we had a band, Dimwit Wimpy, Simon Warner, who later played in the pack in England. Uh, and myself, we had a punk rock band in 77. And... Um, so between what we do with that and also with DOA, we go to the local music shop and we didn't have money for magazines or anything like that. So I'd sit in the back of the magazine, write down the addresses 
And when we finally got a DOA single up, um, I get a letter. I send them the disco suck single. And I had the letter said, and they, they went for a copy. I wrote everyone in the Virginia. Hi, we're a punk rock band from Canada. We'd like to come and play in your town. Uh, <laughs> is it, do, do you have any ideas or whatever I said, right? And I'd have to wait for the letter to come back with a reply. Oh, yeah, you could come and play in this town type thing, right? <laughs> so, and I think, say, young people today couldn't even conceive that, that you would write a letter to, I mean, the first big tour we did in Europe, I was just on the phone uh, talking to a guy about this interview about this set. We went in 84 and did like two months of shows uh, over Western Europe and, you know, in uh, Poland and Yugoslavia behind the Iron Curtain type thing. And that tour originally had a guy in Poland sent us a letter, said, hi, I'm so-and-so. We put on shows. We heard uh, your song General Strike. Uh, Would you like to come and play in Poland? And we wrote him back a letter. Yes, what month can we... <laughs> so it's like so slow, right? But eventually we got there and played, right? But I getting, I'm getting a little bit off topic, but it's like to think, yeah, you just went and found out who would rip you off and who who wouldn't and uh, passed the word around, right? And then I actually exchanged a lot of information with um, uh, Chuck Tukowski from Black Flag because they were, you know, they were touring like crazy uh, as well too, right? So... Chuck and I would confer about like, uh, oh yeah, don't go to that uh, bow guy in Sacramento. I think it's called Can't Tell Productions because as always, you can't tell what the fuck you're going to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, it was it was pretty fun, and, and, and we were like really adventurous. Like uh, we got a van, we got a van. Randy got a van, uh, a real piece of crap, and we drove that. You know, California to 79 to Texas to <laughs> Chicago to New York and then Eastern Canada, like Ottawa and Toronto. Right. I mean, our last that tour was so poorly planned. We had our last show was in Toronto. That was that 3,000 mile drive back to Vancouver. Mm. Now, that's how the tour was laid out. <laughs> <laughs> but we got a little bit better our time went on. You know, one of the things that's, uh, that, that's, you know, when you hear people talk about the band DOA and it's, and it's like, you know, from from Keith Morris to you know Henry Rollins and a few other people that that I've talked to, it's like they all say the same thing that DOA was, and and maybe it's because you guys were just playing so much or just the intensity that you played, but that there were people who were citing that DOA live was like a life changing experience. And these are musicians saying this. It's not just yeah, the, right. the normal fan, you know, who has you know a copy of the record or 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 whatever it is. I mean, these were musicians that said. You know, DOA was something really special, kind of like, you know, the way Bad Brains was really special when they played live. Right. Yeah, I've heard people say that. I've heard that that's, a, that's a pretty nice compliment, obviously, especially coming from uh, the people you mentioned. And uh, we just took it that when we were in, uh, I think it was mid-1977, and we hadn't even really started playing punk rock at all, but we knew about it. And then the Ramones came to town, and uh, they hadn't sold, they'd sold two tickets for a, a club that held 1,100. <laughs> so they made a free show. At the free show, only about 100 people showed up, which is, of course, about the only people in Vancouver that knew anything about punk rock, right? And they played for about 30 minutes, played the, the first album, front to back, went off stage, and I can't remember if they played an encore. And the 100 hour set when it was over, the lights came on, we all looked at each other like, oh, so that's what punk rock is. <laughs> okay, and that was the, that was the book 
that me and my friends took to heart and we went, this is how they, these guys do it. This is how we're going to do it. You know, with like, not, you know, not quite the same uh, thing, you know, but you know, like how they would jam all the songs together and the, which, which increased the intensity, which was different. And we, you know, we just tried to up that. I mean, I, obviously we played faster than the Ramones. So it was like, um, not, not, Obviously not better. Those guys are the, the tops in my books, but uh, maybe a little bit more intense at points type thing, right? So, um, yeah. So it was just that we came along with right time, right place too, right? So I think that's part of it. And we had a really a great lineup. I mean, Chuck and Dave and Randy were great, right? So, yeah. yeah. I, I just remember back in the 80s, you know, having, you know, a lot of friends who were into the, into the scene. And I remember that their parents just thought it was the worst possible thing that a kid could do they, they'd almost rather see the kids straight on drugs than than turn into a punk rock fan and yeah, I, yeah. I mean i remember like a phil donahue uh show and i think jello biafra was was on was on the stage uh yeah and it's, and it's on youtube it's actually funny to watch because if anyone took the time to listen to a jello biafra or anybody else on the stage talking about it you know they were taught i i remember there was a specific friend of mine who was straight edge and he was trying to explain to his parents what straight edge was all uh, was all about, and his parents were horrified. Today, I'd be thrilled if my kids came home and said, "Dad, <laughs> we're going straight edge." I mean, it's yeah, just, it's such he, a different people time. were mystified. But I remember there was like uh, guy's name was Tom Jeffries, and he was the most popular DJ on the biggest station in Vancouver. And uh, he, you know, he always talked shit about punk rock, and they would never <laughs> play it right. It's like they just wanted to play Lover Boy and. Uh, uh, you know, these bands. And uh, so somebody sent him our live record, Triumph of the Ignorance, right? And uh, so we got word that uh, he was going to play our record on the show in the biggest station in Vancouver, you know, five o'clock, you know, drive home type thing. Right. And uh, he goes, oh, we got this new record by DOA called Triumph of the Ignorance. And he put it on and it went for about 10 seconds. They made the needle skip across the thing. <laughs> He took it off and he says, folks, remember, punk rock is junk rock. <laughs> <laughs> and I never did run into the guy to settle the score, but it would have been kind of unpleasant for him. But, you know, you probably got more uh, publicity out of not getting played than if you had gotten played. Absolutely. Hey, then we had this one show just a little bit later, by 86. And... Uh, Oh my God! Yeah, David Lee Roth had been kicked out of Van Halen, but he had a big record out. Was uh, playing filling hockey arenas, right? Fifteen thousand people, right. and Poison was supposed to be the Poison was the opening act, but the guy had broke his ankle in Calgary, so they called us that DOA to sub in for Poison. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Oh. We played, and uh, oh, like um, some people liked us. We had a pretty good chorus of booze going, and. Uh, I got in an argument with David Lee Ross manager after we played. They chucked us all out of the back of the building, and we never <laughs> did see David Lee Ross play. <laughs> yeah, but that's what happened when you're obnoxious punks, right? So that's right. What What was that scene in in, in Vancouver like? Because I mean, I've heard stories. A lot of people don't even consider that Canada really kind of was this fertile ground, but you know, Vancouver specifically did have yeah. a pretty strong scene. You and the subhumans. What was that scene like, and, and how different was it than, say, other areas of the, of, of the states, like, you know, Los Angeles, for example? 
Yeah, I think the thing about uh, Vancouver was like a uh, real backwater, right? You know, um, it's going a lot in the meantime. Uh, but and in those days, there was no music industry. So uh, there's no record companies or anything like that. So the music industry was in you know, London, New York, LA, and Toronto, you know, as far as we were concerned. And uh, so that kind of influence, because I think bands in those bigger metropolises would kind of do stuff that to get them signed to a record label where the bands in the backwater like Vancouver would kind of do stuff just to be different and to attract attention. Right. right, right. And I think that's why we end up with a scene that, like I said, DOA, Subhumans, Point Sticks, Modernettes, the Dishrags, uh, uh, U-Jerks, like, you know, that, you know, some of these bands are not that well known, but it was a pretty vital scene. Right. And one of the fun things about it was that it had a, like a lot of variation, but like the early shows, we would be, uh, we'd have a punk rock band, uh, an experimental noise band, a new wave band maybe, and a reggae band. And that was kind of like your perfect shows, like, because uh, it was all the types of culture that were not popular in the mainstream. Right. Stuck together, right? So, and I thought those were kind of the funnest shows. Then, you know, and then later on, by the mid 80s, then, you know, hardcore shows became much more all hardcore show, all hardcore bands type thing, right? right. So, um, you know, which has its merits and it also not has its weaknesses too, right? In a sense, depending on what you're into. Um, but the, the thing was like a really creative thing, and people did get out there and travel a bit, like DOA, obviously, the most. The subhumans got uh, famous for two reasons. One, because they're really good and have a bunch of great songs. And uh they also, but they also traveled, they they followed DOA's footsteps and yeah. Um, one of the, their manager was a friend of our manager. So we trade information type thing. And, um, and the point six got out there too, because they did do, they went to the UK, they went to California. So they got, you know, they're not super well known, but like a good band that got created following because they were adventurous enough to leave their hometown. And, and for us, the big key was, um, to, uh, instead of going to Toronto, which would be kind of a natural thing for Canadians. Uh, we decided to go, just go to California all the time. So we were going to California five, six times a year. And we became friends with all, you know, like with Keith and uh, all these different people like uh, Bad Religion. You know, that was a little bit later when, when they got going. But um, but anyway, it's the main people in the scene there. And they were just going, up, hey, can you guys come down next week and do the show? And we just got, sure, why not? What else are we doing? You guys have never uh, shied away from making political statements in, in your music. You know, I think anyone that knows DOA well well enough is aware of the the motto "talk minus action equals zero, which I think is I yeah. think is maybe a, a brilliant statement for many people to follow. But over the course of years, you personally have gotten more involved in politics, and now you're a city councilor yeah. in your in your hometown. Was was there a stigma against? Joey shithead running for city council. Cause I mean, I, you, I, all I can think of is the lawn signs. I mean, you know, I always thought that the, that the States had cornered the market on shitheads and politics. It's nice to know <laughs> that we're not alone, but what, but what was the reaction to, of people when, when you said, I'm, I want to run for this, this seat? Yeah. Well, they're just going to act slogan for a second. I mean, I, I always said, um, you know, listen, you always vote for shitheads, so why not Joe shithead? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I, uh, like 20 years ago, I wouldn't have got elected. And I did try running. Uh, my first um, attempted election was in 
1996, I ran for the Green Party for the provincial legislature in British Columbia, right? So uh, like the second level of, of uh, senior government here in Canada. And, uh, you know, I came in fourth out of six or something. I got 500 votes. So I thought that was better than nothing, right? So, right. but it's pretty meager. Uh, I think the winner had 15,000 or 18,000, right? So, um, but I think when I, I would go around my few years ago because I ran six times. So maybe like, let's say, even five years ago, I still get people going like, oh, hey, where's your mohawk? Where's your leather jacket? <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm actually wearing a suit today, right? So this is like kind of, um, I think the big, the real key was that DOA really helped me get elected. And, uh, and was it, it wasn't because people, because I knocked on like 10,000 doors, right? right? Like a lot of door knocking, a lot of individual contact. And people go like, oh, you're the guy from the band. And that didn't mean they were fans, although there were a few people, few people went and got their LPs and I signed, blah, blah, blah. I knew I had their vote <laughs> for sure, right? So, um, but they were like, they respected uh, my stance and the band's stance on different issues um, that were important uh, on the environment, on um, fighting weapons proliferation, uh, uh, fighting racism, fighting for women's rights, so on and so forth, like DOA has always done. And they got it that I was committed to these ideas, even though I've spent my entire adult adult life playing in this crazy punk rock band, right? <laughs> they went, oh, this guy's actually serious. So the band that was a major step in getting me elected, right? So I mean, just I'm I'm trying to imagine, you know, the, the had you run in the eighties when there was so much resistance to to punk rock and to punk rockers and and feeling like you were yep. destroying uh, society by by your music when then when in fact the opposite is true you've probably informed more people as a result of your mu music than turned them away from what was going on in the world yeah i would think there's one real a classic example there's this area called the stein valley is about 200 miles north of vancouver and it was like uh it was the last unlogged watershed in british columbia and british columbia is huge it's like a you know, bigger than Texas, right? Put it that way. And um, and there's a lot of trees here. But, you know, logging industry, is, it's like Oregon and Washington has been a mainstay here for like 120, 130 years, right? So <laughs> we're trying these um, hippies and uh, the <laughs> earth first type people got us DOA up to play this Stein Valley benefit, uh, you know, to try to stop the logging there. And uh, people were so, the townspeople were so outraged at us, uh, you know, they threat, they were threatening us with chainsaws and stuff like that. You know, let's send these turkeys back to Vancouver type thing. <laughs> and uh, so and then it was like, and it got on like a big time news in Vancouver coverage. Was, people were like threatening us and stuff like that. It was like, that was a big issue that everybody knew about. The next year, it was all good. They had a festival that uh, the government organized, John Denver played, and the forest was safe. But when the punks were there, it's just like, who are these dirty, rotten, no good? Uh, <laughs> you know, the next year they have a nice, friendly, uh, uh, folky country guy, right? And so, and that happened a few times. We had, they were uh, fighting this uh, weapons proliferation march across uh, uh, the Broad Bridge in Vancouver, a bridge, one of the main bridges there. And uh, uh, they, the city stopped the march. And I thought, no, I don't want to, you know, because we had this like peace concert, like in this park. And then they, and they thought they said this is a terrible thing. These punks. The next year, um, they had a big march. It was led by church groups, the mayor, 
and uh, all, all sorts of union groups. Oh, this is good. This piece marks, you know. But a year earlier, it was no good. That we were, you know, same, same thing. I'm just going like, okay, these people don't know what the fuck they're talking about, right? It's like, you know, just because it punctuates ahead of their time, right? They really you know, not just but lots of people where they talking about stuff because they're like pretty heightened and aware of um, how fucked up society was, right? You know, and you know, and that's why you uh, get songs like uh, "Smash the State." And now I am a elected city councilor, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can only imagine what it must be like when you and Jello Biafra sit down and just <laughs> just start talking about politics. It must it must be conversations that must go on for literally hours. Yeah, he well, he's a real talker, as you know. Right? So, um, <laughs> yes, for sure. If you watched um, "What Would Jello Say," I think that's what the, his show is called. It's cool. That's good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it'd be, yeah. I mean, and I think so that you know, because there's people like, uh, or you get bands like that are really politically focused, like Propaganda, uh, really good band, like uh, you know, the Next Generation after Jello and I. Yeah. Um, and I think, but other bands were also like pretty political, that but were not as overt, right? People, have, there's different ways to show your politics, right? Uh, a lot of in the early days was like you know suburban angst, and to me that's political as well, right? Yep. So. Um, so there's a lot of different ways of expressing expressing that. So <clears throat> sometimes you can be long-winded about politics, but you know it's also good to have fun too. <laughs> I interviewed Jello, and I think we got 25 minutes into the, into the uh, conversation where I was finally able to ask my second question. So yeah, <laughs> dude can dude can talk. I I, I know you don't okay. have a, I know you don't have a whole lot of time, and I and I know there's a there's a plan to to tour with the 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 re-release of the, of the record. But it's mostly yeah. it's mostly in Canada and in the the Northwest, right? Um, that's just before Christmas. We're having all sorts of problems with um, COVID restrictions here in uh, BC. Uh, just the capacity. Yeah. So clubs that held three hundred now like one hundred and fifty, and people got to sit down. So we're just considering if we're going to do all that. But we do have scheduled. Um, if it, I hope it happens uh, February uh, down. Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, uh, Arizona. <clears throat> and then in April, we're talking about um, going to, like to Colorado through there, Salt Lake down to Texas for a couple of weeks. So we'll see if we get out to, because uh, you're in Springfield, Mass, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, we'd love to get out there again. I'm not sure if it's going to happen this year. Um, later on next year, I'm up for re-election. So by about june uh the focus will change to that we'll still do some shows but it won't be any big long tours right you know we're supposed to go to europe next summer so i play at uh it's the 25th anniversary of rebellion there in uh, in blackpool uh we're supposed to play this last summer right right you know obviously they got canceled right so or postponed so we're on for that so we're trying to fit in as many places as we can we'd love to get out to boston out to Philly, New York, all oh, that's great stomping grounds for us, right? So, and we've got lots of great, lots of great memories in Boston. It was like one of the uh, key, key towns for DOA and the craziest, craziest fucking people in the audience, right? You know, right? <laughs> that's so, why yeah. I'd love, I'd, yeah, no kidding. But I, but I would love to see you guys back out here. It would be, it would be, uh, it'd be wonderful to see DOA again. Yeah, it'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. And when we do play, we're going to, even though it's like going to be at that point, 2022, we will play uh, Park Ray 1 front to back um a lot 
and we'll do more on that because that'd only be an 18 minute show, right? <laughs> <laughs> People go, refund, fuck you guys. <laughs> um, that, and that'll be the first time we've ever done that. So we've been practicing and um, we're on top of it. So, uh, but we're going to keep doing that next year because everything obviously is like because of COVID, right? So, yeah. That's great. Well, I think it's the 40th anniversary, even though it would be the 42nd anniversary, right? So. <laughs> Well, Joe, it's a real pleasure to talk to you, and, and congrats, yeah. congratulations. 40 years is a real milestone. Yeah, no, thank you very much, and thanks for the support. And uh, whenever you get the podcast on, let us know. We'll put a link up on the Sudden Death homepage and all that. Right? We so, will. Absolutely. Thank you, Joe. Okay. Take cool. care. Cool. Okay, right. take care. Not every day you get to hear from two shitheads at the same time. I'm just glad to play my part. Again, the reissue of DOA's Hardcore 81 is out on Sudden Death Records. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed it, feel free to share it, like it, give it a good review, and feel free to follow our updates on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always reach out to me at backsatrock102.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.